0: Welcome to episode 137 of the Garden DC Podcast. In this episode, we talk with Maria Rodale, author of Love Nature, Magic, Shamanic Journeys into the Heart of My Garden. The plant profile is on Northern Spice Bush, and we share what's going on in the garden as well as some upcoming local gardening events in the What's New segment. We close out with Dr. Alan Armitage, who shares the last word on sun or shade loving plants. This episode we're joined by Maria Rodale. She is a author, artist, activist and recovering CEO. Welcome Maria. It's great to be here. Thank you for having me, Kathy. Thank you for joining us. And above all those uh, hats that you wear, Maria, um, you are speaking to us on the Garden DC podcast, because you have a brand new book coming out uh, on February 21st, 2023, entitled Love, Nature, Magic, Shamanic Journeys into the Heart of My Garden. And you've written a few books already, but this is the one we're going to delve into with you today.
1: Excellent. I'm looking forward to it.
0: And before we do that, Maria, on the Garden DC podcast, we always like to ask our new guests, were they born with chlorophyll in their veins and a green thumb?
1: Uh, I do think I was, actually. Um, I do think I was. Hmm.
0: And so – you have come from a legacy of gardeners and a renowned one at that. So maybe we should let our listeners know a little bit about your background and family and how you came into the horticultural world.
1: Right. Well, um, I was born on the um, organic farm. Some would consider it the first organic, official organic farm in America. Uh, my grandfather was J.I. Rodale, who founded organic gardening magazine in 1942. And my parents lived on the same farm. And so I grew up basically playing in the dirt, um, playing in the soil, excuse me, um, running around like a wild animal and just absorbing all the the beauty and wonder of organic nature, um, whether it was cultivated or wild.
0: Hmm. And then did you pursue a degree in horticulture?
1: Well, no. Um was uh part of the family that had a publishing business and we were encouraged as kids to go in that direction rather than in a scientific direction, although You know, my personal passion has always been gardening. That's what I've done to kind of survive while running a business and growing up in a family business. So my um, and I actually my degree from college, I have a double degree in communications and art. So I've always been interested in art and gardening and using nature as a creative um, medium, if you will. Um, but I, because of the family business situation, I, I went into business and now I'm recovering because we sold the business five years ago. Hmm.
0: And are you still on the board of the, of Rodale Institute?
1: Yeah. So the Rodale Institute is a separate organization than the family business. Mm. Um, that's a nonprofit, which is a, you know, public, um, scientific research and education organization that, um, has done the longest running scientific studies comparing organic agriculture and regenerative organic agriculture to to modern chemical synthetic agriculture. Um, so I've been on the board of that organization. I was the co-chair, but now I'm just on the board. So that's a separate organization that is doing amazing work to help farmers uh, learn how to transition to organic ar- farming and um, we continue to do research to this day.
0: Hmm. So important too. I know that there's such a dearth of really good research out there about growing and there's so much still unknown. So glad to hear that that is still actively going.
1: Thank you. Yes. We're we're very proud of the work we've done there. Hmm.
0: And so what is your earliest garden memory?
1: Well, you know, in my family, you know, the men were the intellectuals and the writers and the thinkers, but the women were the actual gardeners and the cooks. So I have, you know, very early memories of just hanging out with my mom while she was weeding and making mud pies and playing in the barn and finding kittens and things like that. Um, And All the smells and aromas of cooking, you know, sitting on the back porch shelling peas and then having them for dinner. Um, So all those um, gardening, farming, eating, cooking memories are are deep in my soul. Hmm,
0: I can imagine. And so you live right now, not too far from that original farm. And can you describe for listeners where you are in Pennsylvania? in relation to some major cities nearby and what that growing climate is like.
1: Yeah. So I live in the woods near, um, in Bethlehem, Pennsylvania, uh, which is about an hour from Philadelphia, two hours from New York city in the Lehigh Valley. Um, my microclimate where I live is, you know, I live at about 900 feet elevation. So at my house, I, it could be snowing and I have six inches of snow and I go down to the bottom of the hill and it's, you know, raining or ice. Um, so I'm a zone six, tons of rocks. All the roads around me have rocks in their name. I live near Big Rock Park. Um, so it's it's, um, it's it's an adventure. <laughs> hmm.
0: I do love the Lehigh Valley and I love that all those original stone houses. But every time I go to Pennsylvania and see them, I'm like, ah, oh, so gorgeous. But then I remember each one of those was probably hand dug from a field exactly. <laughs> to clear it for growing. And that's why you have the beautiful stone fences and uh, stone buildings. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> and so the soil is, I would assume... Uh, a little bit clay but probably more rocky.
1: Yeah, I mean it's where I live I we actually built a house from scratch and it had been, you know, kind of a brambly, it had once been a farm field but allowed to go feral and um so the soil was actually pretty good. The hardest part was the compaction from all the construction vehicles. So, you know, I've I've brought in some soil for my vegetable beds and You know, kind of worked on the soil. I've lived there now probably um, almost twenty years, so I've really worked on building the soil up, and everything. You know, I don't have any problems with things growing. It's nice. Hmm.
0: So you're growing vegetables. Are you growing any ornamental plants or others?
1: Oh yeah my my passion is actually landscaping, because of my art background. I and my my love of like scented flowers. I. you know, if I had to choose one thing, it would be landscaping. But then I also, um, I studied permaculture with Bill Mollison about 27 years ago. And um, so I've really integrated edibles into all my landscaping. I just enjoy kind of experimenting, packing things in, trying, you know, trying different things. But my primary mission is to kind of create a beautiful habitat that feeds everyone, including the wildlife. Mm-hmm.
0: Sounds gorgeous. Thanks. <laughs> so that brings us to not just feeding wildlife, but feeding the soul and your new book. And let's see, what brought you to writing it? Your previous books have been pretty much straight gardening type books. And this one is, seems like a little bit of a departure.
1: Right. So... You know, I wrote a gardening book in 1997, which I, I you know, really enjoyed because I loved it. know, it's nothing like writing a book to help you learn everything you need to learn. Um, so I learned a lot from that. Um, I've written a few other books. I wrote Organic Manifesto in 2009, and that came from really trying to answer for myself the questions, you know, how did we get to this situation, you know, that we use chemicals and, Mm -hmm. and what's better, you know, local or organic and, you know, what can we do and how can we use the information we've learned at the Rodale Institute about what works and what doesn't work to help people understand how, how to farm better and solve the climate crisis. And then, you know, we sold the company. Oh, I wrote a cookbook, Scratch, which was based on nine years of blogging uh, at Maria's Farm Country Kitchen. And I had all these recipes and I was like, okay, you know, let's make a cookbook. And and that was wonderful. Um, But then we sold the company and I was like, now what? You know, who am I now? (laughs) And what do I want to do with my life um, going forward? And I had always been a very, um, what I would say, secretly spiritual um, read every book on religion and the history of religion that I could. Um, you know, explored all the different alternative religion things, and just kind of a, you know the classic seeker. And the thing that really resonated with me the most was when I started studying shamanism and shamanic journeying, um, because that's a way to have a direct experience in um, kind of traveling to the spirit the spirit realms and exploring and, and learning that way. Uh, and it's a, it's an indigenous practice that has roots all over the world. Every culture has some sort of shamanic, um, history to it and practice. And, um, so I had been doing that on my own. I'd taken a few courses and learned about it Um, and and using it more for like trying to understand what to do with the business, figuring out how to have better relationships with people or just, you know, out of curiosity. And then one day early on in the pandemic, when I was like going to make my garden, the perfect garden, because I had all this time, I was struggling with, um, trying to eradicate mugwort, which was this weed that was everywhere in my yard. And some landscaper had told me the only way to get rid of it was Roundup. And I was like, oh. No way am I going to use Roundup. At the time, I was doing a weekly shamanic journey session with a bunch of women, one of whom is an actual shaman, because I am not a shaman. And I thought, I wonder if I tried talking to this plant, if I would learn anything. And it opened a door to a whole new perspective on Nature and myself and humanity. You know, really, it blew my mind. And, you know, basically the message of mugwort was, you know, plants rule the world. You're never going to get rid of us. (laughs) We're here to communicate with you and to help you. So, you know, pay attention to that. And that led me to doing a lot of research on mugwort, not shamanic research, but just general research. And I realized, like, this is an incredibly sacred plant that has deep, deep, roots in all of our cultures, whether it's the Korean culture, you know, the Native American culture, or my own kind of odd culture, which is Pennsylvania Dutch. So in fact, you know, it's it's, um, um, used for smudging in a lot of these cultures, which is a a way of kind of cleansing spirit with um, smoke. Like I, at that point, I was like, that's so interesting. I'm kind of combining my love of gardening and curiosity about that with my, um, spirit, my spiritual passion and where is this going to go? And so I did a few more journeys to other things. And that's when I was like, this is really interesting. This is different. I don't know of any book that's ever done this.
0: <laughs> yeah. So fascinating. And I can so relate to your mugwort journey and story because I have a patch of mugwort, uh, that popped up and is trying to take over my entire garden and I've been struggling with it for several years in perennial beds, and then just uh, last year or so, I was talking to a student of herbalism, and they said, "What grows in abundance is because you have a need for it." Right. So I was like, "What?" You know, that kind of threw me back, and I said, "Oh, well, let me look more into mugworts," and I just started to offer mugwort to every herbalist in the area, come and dig, come and dig. And they were just astounded and loved it. And then of (laughs) course there's plenty more to share. Um, but now I'm, you know, I've, I've made my peace with it. I've found uses for it as you had. Um, and you know, because it has culinary and herbal uses as well, but also I'm letting it grow, you know? So it's, it's great to hear about that. And I love what you said about writing to learn because it is so true that the more you delve into a topic and write about it, the more you uncover and the more you unearth.
1: Yeah. And what I, what I found is that the more interest I showed in learning about mugwort, the more things just popped up. This is where mm-hmm. the magic comes in. You know, it was like, The universe or the mugwort spirit was like saying, oh, here, check this out, you know, or you need to know this person. And um, so it became like, almost like a treasure hunt. It was really fun. Mm -hmm.
0: Yeah. I love like those moments of synchronicity when Mm -hmm. things come together and you've like, I didn't know this and I didn't know I was looking for it. And it just came to me. So that's wonderful to hear about. And so another plant in the book that could be considered I'm only don't don't want to use the phrase gardener's enemy Mm -hmm. but that's how a lot of people think of mugwort but in that same turn poison ivy is Mm -hmm. thought of as something to fight and get rid of Mm -hmm. Um, so can you tell us a little bit about your journey with poison ivy
1: (laughs) so it started when my daughter one of my daughters lives on Cape Cod and you know, I went to visit her, and she's you know like living in a house with a lot of kids, you know, a lot of other kids, and like their whole front yard was covered with poison ivy. And I was like, you know, this is a lot of poison ivy. And she was like, yeah, you know, all the parents say that, but they they didn't care. <laughs> but I couldn't not care. So you know, I pulled all of it out. I pulled out like four giant garbage bags of poison ivy, um, and of course, then I got poison ivy, and um, that's when I was like, okay, what is poison ivy trying to tell me? And um, that was one of my most i think interesting journeys because because well, first of all <clears throat> I didn't expect to actually meet the spirit of poison ivy, but I did. she was like beautiful, um you know like thirty or forty feet tall, all neon green um and very loving and gentle and she you know she told me that like their job, poison ivy's job is to protect nature protect the wildness um but also um you know remind us to pay attention and not just pay attention to poison ivy but pay attention to everything around us and um the other message i got from her that was really interesting is that you know you don't really need to ingest a plant to experience healing from it um just the act of communicating with a plant and like having a relationship with it can help to create healing. Hmm.
0: I love that the message from poison ivy was pay attention. Mm-hmm. I think we can all relate to that. And I'm not so poison ivy sensitive. I can probably rub it on my skin and not get it, but I still am hyper vigilant about it because I, you know, wouldn't want a visitor to my garden to uh, be exposed to it and get a rash. But, you know, we can leave it where there might not be a high traffic area of the garden or where wildlife can enjoy it
1: right and and that you know that was one of my big takeaways from all this it's like they're not saying you know don't ever pull us out you know um or don't ever try to get rid of us but like don't make it a fight ask permission you know thank it for you know being there you know leave it where it can be left and just kind of you know her other message was like creating boundaries you know Poison ivy creates boundaries for the woods, you know, for nature, but we need to also create boundaries for ourselves.
0: Mm, so true. And so hard for some of us who are obsessed gardeners right. <laughs> to, to learn that lesson <laughs> and the and the borders um, and boundaries we need to have between things and maybe not so much uh, control on the human side.
1: Yeah, that was a huge message from all of the journeys that I did is that You know this idea that we can control nature, or that you know I I call it in some cases like the tyranny of tidiness. It's just it's not healthy for anyone. You know it's and it it stems from like fear and also you know colonialism and oppression. You know that's like that it has to be a certain way and this is the only way or this is the best way. Um, And um, so it really inspired me to relax. Hmm.
0: Yeah, I think uh, in the introduction to the book, you talk about your, I think it's grandmother uh-huh. who wants super neat, non-weedy gardens. That was my mother. That was your mother. I'm oh, yeah. sorry. Yeah, that your mother was would be ringing in your head um, when you went out to weed, that it had to be super non-weedy, mm-hmm. um, super kept up. But um, that isn't something that necessarily you have to carry on
1: right right and, and you know again another big message from this was like from the whole book was this idea of like generational healing that the work we need you know we think of the environment and you know we've got to save the environment and like get angry and be kind of um, aggressive about fighting you know fighting climate change but really it's about healing our own selves and our own hearts And changing the way, rearranging our brain in terms of how we interact with nature. And then healing happens like so easily and beautifully. It's not Mm. a fight, you know, It's Mm -hmm. it's a dance.
0: I love that. So I was looking at the cover of your book and I think the artwork is just beautiful and the two things that strike you the most when you look at it, the different layers of green, but also there's obviously plants and and um, flowers shown in leaves, but there's a snake weaving its way in mm-hmm. um, so that brings to mind Jungian archetypes and what the snake means to people. What does the snake mean to you Maria
1: oh, well when I you know i when I first saw the cover with the snake on it I was like not the snake because it's like too uh everybody has so many different feelings about snakes Mm -hmm. and you know and uh, i i actually came back to no, the snake needs to be there but um i i feel very deeply connected to um the aboriginal australian aboriginal culture and um what they have one of their like Key origin stories and all their different—they um, call their tribes mobs—is the idea of the um, the rainbow serpent, and you know the rainbow serpent is like the creator of everything. So I, for many years, I was like, you know, what is this rainbow serpent, and um, what does it mean? And and through this whole process of writing the book, I you know I came to understand that well, first of all, rainbows come from water and the serpent is is tied to water but it's also tied to the whole um the cycles of how the universe works one of the, one of the oldest symbols found in ancient cultures everywhere is the spiral and um what you know physicists and astrophysicists now know you know what you know we see pictures of our galaxies their spirals you know, hurricane is a spiral, a seashell is a spiral, a sunflower is a spiral. And um, what I think the rainbow serpent shows us is that everything is like a spiral moving forward. Um, in fact, I talk about how, you know, when we think about the models of planets going around the sun it looks flat it looks oval but it's actually we're all going around the sun and moving somewhere at the same time so it it really is a spiral you know physics scientists would say yes it's a spiral Hmm. Um, so I think that what that does for me is it puts everything in perspective in that you know we all look back at history and say "Oh, things were either better or worse or Oh, we're going through the same thing again. And my personal belief is that what this snake energy and the rainbow serpent tells us is that, yeah, it's a spiral. We're, we're, you know, or some people would say like a pendulum, but we're still moving forward. Things seem good and then they seem bad, they seem good and then they seem bad. And it, it doesn't feel like we're getting anywhere, but actually we're always moving forward. We're always moving to a better, more evolved place. Um, So that's what snake is for me.
0: Wow. Fascinating. (laughs) Yeah. And I've been obsessed lately with the Fibonacci spiral and sequence and that ties so well into there and didn't even equate that with the snake. So I'll I'll look at snakes in a whole different light now. (laughs) So can we describe Uh, a bit about the shamanic journey for our listeners so if we were to pick an aspect of our garden that frustrated us say um rabbit predation or of the vegetable patch or a weed that just will not relent what would we relate that in a shamanic journey way
1: well shamanic journeying is a very specific practice um You know, some people ask me, oh, is it like meditating? It's like, not really. Because, you know, when you're meditating, you're kind of trying to quiet your mind. When you're journeying, you're going somewhere. And that's why it's called journeying. But because you're going to, quote unquote, other realms, whatever those are, we don't don't exactly know what they are. um, It's important to protect yourself. So in the book, I I give... um, I give examples. Actually, Lisa, the shaman that I work with, um, wrote and in the audio version, she reads the opening sacred space, which is a beautiful, a beautiful, beautiful um way to kind of prepare to journey, create a safe space, honor, you know, all the spirits and everything. Um when I'm journeying for myself, I do a much shorter version. It's basically like going to each of the four directions, and then you know, the earth and the sky universe and saying, you know, please protect me, keep me safe, show me what I need to see. Um, you know, let's say I want to, you know, help me understand rabbits and what I need to know about rabbits. Um, and then the key, the essential ingredient to a shamanic journey is a drum, the sound of a drum. And I use a drumming app. Um, there's a couple different apps, but the one I use is, um, by mindful bear apps, and so it's a, there's a certain speed to it and a consistency. And I write about in the book how there the first scientific study was done to measure brainwaves of shamans who are journeying versus you know people who are listening to classical music versus people who are listen who are actually taking a psychedelic journey, a psychedelic you know on LSD or something, and they definitely proved and showed that when people are journeying, their brainwaves radically change. Hmm. Um, so there's definitely something going on there. And, you know, you can set them a timer for like 10 minutes. I, I usually do 20. Um, Lisa thinks that too. that's too long, but, you know, I, I need 20 minutes. Um, and you just kind of lay down, take your shoes off, close your eyes, get comfortable, I put blankets on. And just surrender, you know, to to the sound of the drum. Typically, you enter, um, visually like start it, kick it off by entering into what they call a portal, which is, um, you know, a cave or a crack, you know, those things in the bottom of trees, those holes in the bottom of trees that look like, you know, hobbit doors.
0: Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, yeah, the little fairy entrances.
1: Because, yeah. you're, you know, you're kind of signaling to the spirit realm, I'm entering into your world now. Then, you know, and I think it's different for everybody probably, but when I've you know done it with other people, it's very visual for me. And I think for a lot of people, sometimes it's not, you kind of have to suspend disbelief. It's normal to question like, is this, you know, is this working? Am I crazy? Uh, But, you know, if you can quiet that part of your brain and just let it go all of a sudden, you know, things will start to happen. You know, you'll be walking down a path or you'll be jumping into water or, or you know, rabbit will show up and start talking to you. <laughs> and I, not enough scientific research has been done to say, okay, if, you know, a hundred people do a journey to a rabbit, would they learn the same thing or not? But I think it's very um, tailored to you and the message you need to hear. Um, you know, cause these are your spirit guides who, who are trying to communicate with you. And, and I think they're mostly communicating through imagery. Like I didn't even learn until recently that you could actually talk or ask questions, um, during a journey. So n- now my journeys have become more conversations, but, um, before that they were very visual. And then, and then, you know, with the drum Stops, it calls you back with a speedy, you know, faster drumbeat. Um, And at that point, you need to write everything down. Otherwise, it's like a dream. You know, you might forget it. Um, And then give thanks, close sacred space, and sit back and think, okay, what did this mean? And the other important reason to write it down is because it might mean something completely different six months from now or a year from now. So it's an interesting process, and I don't think everybody should feel they have to go out and journey now. This is just something I do, and I'm not – the book isn't trying to say, you should journey, and here's how to do it. It was really more I journeyed, and this is what I learned, and I think people might enjoy hearing it. Mm -hmm.
0: Yeah, I think – people would be interested in learning how and possibly doing it, but reading about your experiences can just be as, you know, enlightening to them. And if they find it's like a little woo woo, you know, they're a little uncomfortable. They come from a religious background that says, you know, maybe this doesn't feel okay for them, but they can experience it through you.
1: Right. And I, the important thing, I do talk about this in in the book. Journeying and shamanism is not a religion, and it's not. Nobody's trying to convert anybody. <laughs> so you could be a Catholic priest and journey. You could be, you know, a rabbi and journey. You could be just a, you know, you be a Muslim and journey. In the, you know, this is. It's not a religion. There's no, there's no gurus. There's no, um, there's no dogma. There's no rule. I mean, the rules are about staying safe. Um, but I mean, I can tell you that what happened to me during this process is I started feeling deep love and compassion for the very things that annoyed the hell out of me beforehand. (laughs) And that surprised me.
0: Hmm. Yeah, that's such a good point about, you know, it's not a religion. It's a practice that can go hand in hand with your religion practice, just like meditation and yoga could be folded into whichever right. um, religion that you practice. And I love that you're saying that what you were fighting against, you're now embracing and actually hold affection towards. Yeah. And how do you feel that the shamanic journey turns that um, and makes that into an affection?
1: Well, for me personally, and this is, I think, a message that we can apply to our real lives. Um, it's about sitting down and having a conversation with something you didn't understand before. You know, with a, you know, whether it's another person, you know, and then hearing their hearing their story, like what they're here to do, why they exist what's important to them. And, um, and then you kind of like, basically you become friends and, you know, I, you start to see things from a whole different perspective and, um, realize that, you know, they're just trying to exist just like, just like we are. And they're, they have a job to do just like we do. And they're just trying to like help us, you know, <laughs> or tell us something that we need to hear. It's just the process of like connecting and and uh, feeling, not thinking so much. Hmm.
0: So true. And so one of the chapters in your book is on the mosquito. <laughs> and so that's one of the ones that I can see that uh, will be a lot of resistance and how we can feel actual affection for that creature.
1: Well, you know, that's one where like, And that was one of my, that was my most difficult chapter for so many reasons. I'm not saying I like love the mosquito and that we're best friends. And like, I just, you know, I still get bitten by mosquitoes and I still, you know, I'm going to slap them if they land on me. Um, But I think the important thing about that chapter is it really taught me a lot about how mosquitoes, how actually they're essential to the environment. Yes, they bite us and they cause disease. But like their larvae actually keep the water clean, and their larvae and mosquitoes themselves are food for you know an enormous number of of species. That if we succeeded in doing what the nineteen fifties TV commercials for DDT said, well, we have now eradicated the you know the mosquito. And they literally said that. I mean, if you can watch the documentaries on it. Um, you know, we'd actually be eradicating ourselves. And that was a big message from the mosquito chapter. Terrific.
0: And I was going to say that the book overall, the title, Love, Nature, Magic, how did you arrive at that
1: title? I'm a journal, journaler. I write journals. And I actually first used that phrase on a journal. I wrote maybe like 11 years ago well it actually and and that actually came from um do you you know about the um life mapping process where you you know answer like okay what am i good at what do i love what what does the world need (laughs) and you kind of do a kind of a vanish diagram and um and i think what you know i've always been obsessed with love I've always been obsessed with nature. I think in the original Venn diagram, it was like organic, (laughs) love nature, (laughs) organic. And I was like, ah. (laughs) But once I identified that, I realized um, that the closer you get to who you really are, the more authentic you are with yourself, the more magic starts to happen, the more easy things become. And like the, the universe tells you when you're doing the right thing. Like if, so for, for example, going back to mug work, you know, if you're like trying, when I was trying to like just kill mug work, it was not easy. It was hard. It was like a struggle. But the minute I s- shifted my view to like a more kind of questioning, open to learning, um, that's when the magic started. And um, that's when things became easy. So, um, so that's been in my mind for a long time. And, um, I was like, okay, this is when I decided I wanted to write this, but the original title for the book I wrote was something like, you know, 12 horrible, terrible weeds and what we need to know about them, <laughs> you know, <laughs> what they want us to know. And I was like, uh, eh, you know, that, cause then I started talking to animals and <laughs> bugs and, <laughs> and then I was like, Oh, love nature magic. That's what really this is about.
0: Hmm. And who are some of your biggest influences, both in, in the garden and out?
1: From a writing perspective, uh, you know, Michael Pollan has been a huge influence on me, um, as a reader and kind of like, if there's a spirit, uh, a writer spirit guide to this book, it's Bill Bryson. You know, know, he's like a really funny writer who, um, teaches you stuff, but tells you, funny stories along the way Um, from the environmental and gardening space. I mean, Bill Mollison, I I studied with him directly. He's, he was like an amazing character of a person, you know, all the people who worked in the organic and regenerative space are important artists like Bruce Springsteen, painters. I mean, I get my influences and my, I'm a very uh, eclectic person and my family. I mean, my, my grandfather, my father, my mother, my grandmother. They were huge influences on me. Hmm.
0: And since you mentioned Bruce Springsteen, <laughs> I'm picturing you writing your book, the actual, you know, butt in the chair, front of the computer, writing. Do you have music on in the background? And if so, what are you listening to?
1: I actually tend to, when I'm writing a book, I do not like to listen to music because I'm, it's kind of like trying to write a song while you're listening to music, you know, like I need the silence. Cause I'm listening to the music of the spheres, you know? <laughs> um, but I am a huge music lover and I go through these like crazy phases. And right now I'm in, um, I'm loving like kind of, and maybe it's cause I'm getting older, but like swing music, you know, the jazz singers like Nancy Wilson and just that kind of like crooning, uh the people who you know bob dylan singing the standards um from his album triplicate but i'll listen to anything i'll listen to anything and i love music so much i have ticket, i have tickets to see taylor swift i'm really excited about that wow
0: <laughs> lucky you and who do you picture reading the book and what do you think the outcome will be what, when you sent this book into the world What are your wishes for it?
1: Well, my wishes, and it's a big wish, are that, um, first of all, obviously I want gardeners to read it, but I'd like men gardeners to read it. Not just men gardeners, men to read it, because um, I think there's important lessons. I, I feel like men are struggling right now in society, and there's really important insights for them there but Mm -hmm. I also want young people to read it because one of the things I know from being in publishing that like women are the biggest readers in general so I'm obviously hoping that women read it but um I do think for young people like they want they seem open and want a different perspective and they're the future you know so if they can like learn some of the things different ways of healing and dealing with humanity and nature and kind of transcend this division that we feel, you know, we're stuck in. Um, that would be amazing. Hmm.
0: That would be amazing. (laughs) And how can our listeners contact you?
1: Uh, well, I have a website, MariaRodale.com and, you know, all my different activities are there and a way to contact me is there. Um, but I'm also on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook. I'm on I'm on TikTok, but just as a lurker at this point.
0: <laughs> <laughs> and how can they purchase the book?
1: The best way is Amazon. And um, the book comes out on February 21st. I also read the audio version myself, which was really fun. So for people who prefer audiobooks, um, I highly recommend it. I even sang which was a big step for me.
0: Wow! (laughs) Yeah, I love, you know, as an extension of being a podcast listener, I love to listen to audiobooks when I'm, you know, working or weeding in the garden. So I'll definitely have to get that version of it. I love it when it's especially in the author's own voice.
1: Thank you. Yeah, the one thing about the audiobook, though, that it doesn't have um, all the resources at the back. Mm. Um, So, I you know, I give a lot of resources, whether it's for – Um, you know learning about shamanism or gardening resources you have to buy the book for that
0: okay so we'll have to buy both versions out there listeners (laughs) the audio (laughs) and the print one and maybe a few as gifts as well
1: that's right Please.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Thank you so much for joining us on the Garden DC podcast, Maria, and for sharing your love of nature and magic and your shamanic journeys.
1: Thank you so much. It was a pleasure.
2: This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg.
0: Northern Spicebush Plant Profile Northern Spicebush, Lindera benzoin, is a deciduous shrub in the laurel family that is also known as Spicebush, Wild Allspice, and Benjamin Bush. It is native from southeastern Canada throughout the eastern United States. It gets its common name from the fact that crushing the leaves releases a spicy fragrance. In early spring, the plant is covered in small yellow flowers then it leaves out. In the fall, the leaves turn an attractive yellow color and red droops or fruits appear along its branches. It is dioecious, so a female plant needs a male one nearby in order to produce fruit. It can grow to between 6 and 12 feet high and wide. It is an understory plant that prefers part shade and moist, rich soils near stream beds and ponds. It is hardy from zones 5 through 9. The plant supports Spicebush swallowtail, as well as the Palomatis swallowtail butterfly and other pollinators. The fruits are eaten by migrating songbirds, and deer eat its leaves and twigs. Northern Spicebush, you can grow that! What's new in the garden this week? Well, I took advantage of one of those mild winter days to go over to the community garden plot and see what was happening. And I was pleased to see the garlic is up and green and about four inches high. So exactly where it's supposed to be at this time of year has a nice blanket of straw all around it. So it's well insulated and protected and in good form to take off and grow this spring. In the local gardening world, if you're in the Washington, D.C. region, some events you might want to attend include the National Capital Orchid Society's annual orchid show and sale. And that's President's Day weekend, February 17th through February 19th at Homestead Gardens in Davidsonville, Maryland. That includes over 100 varieties and thousands of plants on display in Homestead's Greenhouse with experts to answer all your questions. They'll have workshops and exhibits to educate you, and of course, plenty of orchids to purchase. One event you won't be able to attend, but I wanted to bring your attention to, is the U.S. Botanic Gardens Production Facility Tours on March 11th. And those are held annually and they fill up very quickly. Um, And I see that all of the spots are already spoken for. So just put this on your calendar for next January to jump on usbg.gov to get your slot on that production facility tour and to see the behind the scenes at their growing greenhouse. So Silver Spring Garden Club, my garden club, is having a meeting on Monday, February 27th at 7.30 p.m. at Brookside Gardens that is open and free to guests. The speaker is Carol Allen, and the topic is DIY microgreens, um, growing delicious and nutritious microgreens at home. And the following week, Saturday, March 4th, from 10 a.m. to 12 noon is the eco-savvy symposium at green spring gardens and this is a feel-good eco-savvy gardening good for you and good for our world put on by the green spring gardens extension master gardeners and that's the 19th annual eco-savvy symposium so congratulations to them you can find out more about that and register for that at fairfax county park takes and uh that. Registration closes on Friday, March 3rd. Happy gardening!
2: Get low-maintenance alternative salons with the new book Ground Cover Revolution by Kathy Jets. Reducing the lawn is among the biggest trends in homeownership, with an endless stream of homeowners looking for an eco-friendly alternative to a traditional, everyday grass lawn. In the last few years alone, over 23 million American adults converted part of the lawn to a natural landscape and now are looking to do even more. The biggest challenge to adopting this new ideal of the perfect lawn is knowing how and when to replace your turf and which plants are the best ones for the job. Ground Cover Revolution is here with all the answers you need. Included are 40 in-depth profiles of plants that are perfect choices for replacing a grass lawn. There are options for sun, for shade, for dry and wet sites, and for various climates around the globe. There are choices that bloom, options that are evergreen, and selections that are deer-resistant. Author Kathy Jentz has also included an incredibly useful chart that gives you all the details on each of the 40 choices for quick reference and to make your ground cover selection process even easier. Whether you want to replace the entire lawn or just reduce the amount of land dedicated to turf, Ground Cover Revolution will help you usher in a new and improved idea of what a beautiful lawn should be. Available at bookstores now and also at Quarto.com, where you can get 30% off using discount code GARDENING30. area you'll crave spending time in. Whether you're growing edible plants or beautiful flowers, the 101 amazing growing ideas found in the urban garden will turn your tiny urban yard into a treasure trove of green you'll be proud to share with family and friends. Buy your copy today at your local retail bookseller or order it online now at amazon.com or bookshop.org.
3: Well, good day everybody, it's Dr. A back in the garden with the last word. And today's last word has to do with common sense gardening, which you have perhaps heard me speak of before. Gardening should not be brain surgery or rocket science. It should be fun. And having fun in the garden means that we just look at this thing as sort of, what can we do to make it easy? I am sure many of you, in fact, people who are listening to this have been asked time and time again about a plant, whether it's shade loving or sun loving. So let's talk a little bit about this topic of sun and shade, and I'll give you my last word. First of all, there is no such thing as a plant loving anything. If we replace the word loving with the word tolerant, then we talk about shade-tolerant and sun-tolerant plants. All you have to know or all you have to reply to somebody who asks you about sun and shade is that a sun-tolerant plant on the label or from the nursery tolerates full sun most of the day. A shade tolerant plant simply does not tolerate to make it simple, afternoon sun. Western exposure, brutal sun in the afternoon. A shade tolerant plant will tolerate almost all sun in the morning till noon or 11 or whatever you want to talk about. But this whole shade loving and sun loving is nonsense. Just think of, is a plant shade tolerant or sun tolerant? And all a shade plant means is that it does not tolerate afternoon sun. That is my simple way of looking at sun and shade. And that is my last word. Hope you enjoy. Come see me in the garden. This is Dr. A. Have fun.
0: You can find Washington Gardener online at washingtongardener.com, on Twitter at WDC Gardner, on Instagram at WDC Gardener, and on Facebook.com at Washington Gardener Magazine.